Hello, welcome to the Society of Construction Law podcast. My name is Sean Brady, and I'm one of the directors of the Society. On the show today, we have Kerry Power. And after a decade in private practice as a construction lawyer, Kerry saw an ad for a part-time role as an in-house counsel with global engineering firm Arup. And this, for her, was one of her dream jobs. Kerry even showed her boss the job ad who encouraged her to apply. Three months later, Kerry had the task of letting her boss know she got the role. Now, more than 12 years later, Kerry sees the construction industry from a very different perspective. She's a principal with Arup. She's the regional legal counsel for Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Indonesia, and soon to be Malaysia. And she is the current president of Consult Australia, the industry group representing professionals in the built environment. I've seen Kerry present on a number of occasions, and if you had to sum her up, I'd sum her up with one of the quotes she put in her own paper for the Society of Construction Law. She said, Undermine their pompous authority, reject their moral authority, make anarchy and disorder your trademarks, cause as much chaos and disruption as possible, but don't let them take you alive. And that's a quote from Sid Vicious from the Six Pistols. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Lovely to be here. Why was this your dream job? Why did you want to leave private practice and, and, uh, and, and get into the industry a little more? Um, private practice is hard. It's gruelling hours. They're really tough environments. Um, you're not very close to the actual projects and things that make a difference. So for me, it became a, a driver to get close to projects and how they're delivered day to day. And I'd been looking for an in-house uh, role for a while and I just stumbled across an ad and it was perfect. It was the right city, it was part-time, it was for a fascinating company, an employee-owned company. And uh, about six interviews and three or four months later I got <laughs> it. Um, and it, it's been uh, an utter roller coaster. The company's grown tenfold in, in the 12 or so years that I've been there already. And I've seen that entire loop of projects from the chase for them all the way through to the litigation at the back end. Um, sort of says something when you've mm-hmm. negotiated the contract, contract and doing the litigation and, and having to give a witness statement at the end. So <laughs> done the whole life cycle now. And Arab itself, I mean, did that play a role in your, in your choice? Um, I hadn't specifically been looking for an engineering company, I think I, as a construction lawyer, I'd been looking for something in the construction industry, but it's been a serendipitous choice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's an employee-owned uh, organisation, so it has that difference that, it, that it's, it's not a not-for-profit company, but money is not the prime driver. Mm-hmm. We're not beholden to shareholders with a quarterly return. It has much longer-term thinking and analysis that and and depth of thought that sits behind it as a result i think mm-hmm. um it's a much more hum- it's a very humane organization and it really made you challenge what it means to be a lawyer and to practice law mm-hmm. in the australian jurisdiction in what in what way Why are you? um so one of the principles is honorable dealings so how do you mm-hmm. deal honorably while defending litigation while negotiating a contract um what would you put in your own contract if you said, my goal is to be fair and reasonable? Mm-hmm. So you became challenged all of a sudden 
to not just do what everybody else did, but to actually stop and think about, is this contract I'm writing a fair and reasonable contract? Is it good mm -hmm. for both sides? Does everybody win? Um, should I run that tactic in the litigation, even though I know that it has no benefit? It's just uh, to create pressure for the purpose of litigation. How do I defend ourselves against that? Mm -hmm. um, it reflects in a lot of different decisions you make along the way. Um, so I'm a big believer in the use of standard contracts because they've been drafted by a committee and everyone's had the argy-bargy around it mm -hmm. and they generally end up reflecting a fair middle point. Um, in the litigation, I think it has had a biggest influence on the type of lawyers I've selected to represent the company. I was company. just going to say that's, that's got to be a big, a big difference. Yeah. I think it's culture finds culture. Yep. So I'm always attracted to lawyers who at their heart love their profession and love their profession in the the principles of that profession. Mm -hmm. What does it actually mean uh, to run a piece of litigation that actually is about getting to the right outcome, not the outcome that just is uh, creates a tactical advantage for your client? Um, you, we, we see so much of, of our litigation in the Australian environment being driven for very aggressive t um, roles, and it's... I sometimes have this view of if you could present a straightforward, well-researched case, we'd get to the end of it so much faster. But what we get are very large, very explosive global-type claims, and they're very, very hard to get to the mm -hmm. end to. Um, I think there's a lot of drivers that sit behind that. Um, it's also challenged me to build really, really diverse teams. Because yes. if you're going to run a piece of litigation, well, you want... A really diverse team because otherwise you end up get trapped into my case can only mean x y and z um and and the outcome has to be me winning and uh you, by building that diverse team you can really challenge how you think about the case and the perspective of all the parties involved so what's your what's your typical day like you know and without the the, the sort of the marketing blurb of what the role is what what do you spend most of your time doing what's it like being in-house, which um, what are? There's, there's a lot of day-to-day -day basic lawyering, lawyering <laughs> if that's a word. Mm -hmm. um, literally reviewing a contract and doing a markup and sending it across to the other side. Um, uh, writing uh, today was, uh, there's a new uh, um, app where we're in the middle of producing that... Um, is going to digitise an element of a professional service. So we're going, what are the insurer's issues going to be? Who owns the data that sits inside that app? Yes. Um, can we use the Australian standards? And how do you cross-refer to those? How do you produce a professional report out of the back end of, a, of an app application? So going through all the intellectual property and which company should own that intellectual property. And it's actually quite fascinating. Well, this is, this is where it gets interesting, isn't it? Because me and you have had many, many conversations after many events and we, we have lots of ideas about you know what we believe should change about the construction industry and why don't you tell us your thoughts of where we are as an industry and 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 where you see us going yeah and and i've been having this conversation in the industry for a few years now and and as a starting point i'm reflecting on a conversation i had at the last Sokola conference and sitting down with a very, very experienced, well-known member of the, rep of the industry and, and uh, she made the observation, you know, and she's been in this industry decades longer than me, um, and 
she was thinking, yeah, she thought things would have changed by now, that we would have looked at the evidence and the outcomes we were achieving in the industry. Um, and she was saying it hasn't shifted very much. And when I sort of joined, uh, when I joined Arup and I saw how the projects were playing through and what results we were achieving and, and then you get involved in your industry association and you see the data, you see the Deloitte reports on the inefficiencies in the construction industry, you see the projects again going over budget and over time and you actually sit there and you watch the real day-to-day -day impact of these mega projects mm -hmm. on your people. Um, and we've been involved in some very, very large projects. And I think all of us know the people who have burnt out. We all know the people who have ended up getting divorced. You've all known the people who've mm -hmm. absolutely put their life on the lines for these projects. And you sit there and you go, there's, there's an absence of really good reward for, for some of this effort and how these projects are structured because so many times these projects uh, are ending up with someone paying a price that shouldn't be paid, whether it's a company going down or shareholders losing money or you know, the, the tax taxpayers losing money. So on that point, what do, you, what do you think the biggest disconnects are between how people think these projects are working and think the industry works versus what the data is actually telling us? So I think we've got a lot of people who think they're on an individual project level are doing really good work, that they are writing great contracts, they're mm -hmm. putting great financial models together, that these projects are going to succeed. But the data, when you sit back and you look at the data over the last 50 to 100 years, the analysis, the research is going back 100 years now, is that especially on major projects, they are consistently being delivered um, over time and over budget. Mm -hmm. And yet we seem to be keeping on using the same tools over and over and over again yep. um, to, to overcome these, these problems. So what I'm seeing is we seem to be trapped in a vicious sort of cycle where we're sitting in business as usual, writing the same kind of contracts, using the same kind of procurement models, the same kind of thinking, um, and expecting to deliver different outcomes into our economy and, and market. And the data is sitting there going, we're becoming more and more expensive, it's more burdensome, we're not going to be first adopters of innovation. Mm -hmm. You know, where are we really tackling climate change sustainability in our infrastructure development, in our new buildings, in our cities? Um, are we, is Australia being a leader in innovation and managing risks? And the answer is, while we'd like to think we are, the data is pretty clear that we're not. And I think there's some real structural and industry constraints um, that are holding us back. And they're constraints that are almost in our minds. They're about our mm. bravery and courage to actually not do things because that's how it's been done on the last five, five six projects. So what are, what are those constraints? You know, what, what do you see as the, in what you do in a day-to-day -day and in the wider research? What are the, what are the things that are holding us back? Um, there's a few elements. And, and to me, I think of this as the vicious cycle that, we, that we're sitting inside in the industry. Um, firstly... We don't have a huge amount of diversity of, um, of, of 
leaders, of thinkers. Um, it's a it's become a pretty insular industry of people who've been trained in the same way for twenty or thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very male industry. Yep. Um, so we've got a pretty homogenous group who have been in this space uh, for a long time now and have been thinking a particular way for a long yep. time. Um, it, we're adopting very adversarial models. To me, the adversarial models in some... This res- is in the contracting when you're putting these jobs together? In the contracts and the day-to-day running of projects as well. Okay. Um, the entire construction industry has a very adversarial model mm-hmm. at its at its core. And to me, there's actually a link between having a very... That, that diversity point is actually is one of the origins of of why we have such rigid sort of adversarial contracts Um, and we do have adversarial contracts Mm -hmm. Um, we have a assumption that the best or the or what lawyers have been trained to do in our industry for 20 years is to write clauses that are really really good at putting uh, everything in tiny little boxes Mm -hmm. all our risks and boxes tying them up with a bow and moving them on and as you go down the supply chain the boxes and the services might be getting smaller, but the whole risk is, get, is getting packaged up and moved down and down the supply chain. And you get down the supply chain and it's a traffic control person who's signing up to a two-inch thick contract, which has such a disconnect from the real core risk that he's managing, which is the safety of the, of the traffic going in and around a site. Um, but this process has never looked at how cell health and safety can be managed across projects as a as a core function and how that risk gets transferred through um, through a whole contract chain um, and and we end up with some really unusual and poor outcomes for our people as we do that um, so we're very good at writing writing great hard contracts um, which transfer a lot of risk we're not managing risk as a result we think we've managed mm. risk but it hasn't actually shifted because at the end of the day um, the projects are becoming more expensive without doing more risk management. And the, the, the process of identifying risk and starting to manage them early on as a project is a really complex piece of thinking to do. Yeah. And is that happening? The I don't, way you think it should be happening? I'll give you this story. I was um, doing some meetings in Canberra with some politicians and we were talking to a, a director general of one of the departments and... I was asking what procurement model they were choosing for, and they were talking about a major infrastructure project that was coming up. And, and I went, well, what procurement model have you chosen? Because procurement model is one of your key drivers around risk management. You've got to understand clearly what your risks are, and then you choose a procurement models that might align with those risks. And he went, oh, the lawyers and financiers have done that. And I'm sitting there going, if your risk management model has been that lawyers and financiers will do it for me, then what you've got is two people who probably only have a window into a couple of the key risks yep. and who have decided how the risks are going to be managed and effectively or more effectively transferred through the whole project. And that was that to me was the beginning of the disconnect um, between how you start really delivering risk management and, and delivering good project outcomes. And this is really coming back to the 
the old thing of the minute you move risk away from someone who can manage it to someone who can't manage it, then the risk just doesn't get managed because that person can't manage it and the person who should be managing it has passed it on. Yeah, and the risk doesn't really move at the end of the day because at, and because sometimes these risks, um, the risk that's being managed by the lawyer is something will go wrong I'll need to run a really big piece of litigation. How can I have the most onerous contract that suits my client mm-hmm. best yep. in the, in that litigation? But all that's done is actually move a risk that the client could have managed into a cost that the client is carrying at the end of the job. Mm-hmm. The project is still over budget or over time. Yep. You've got, um, you haven't actually managed or contained that risk and you've made the lawyer a lot more money as they've managed the dispute at the back end. It, it becomes a sort of a self-serving cycle. Um, and for uh, it, it's and it's interesting as I've been having this conversation over the last few years. Um, uh, w- when I started doing this conversation about risk transfer versus risk management, the lawyers would say, "Ah, yes, but this is what the clients want. They want me to write these adversarial contracts. They demanded of me." And I went, "Well, I've spoken to the clients as well, and they go, but this is the considered legal advice I've been getting.' Um, and I still get those arguments. And but the new one is." But this is what the financiers tell me. So actually, we're all we're all sort of backing around each other in a circle, going, "I I don't choose to do it this way. I I'm being told by somebody else that it has to be done." So we're in this sort of vicious circle. We actually don't know why we're doing what we're doing. We're doing. Now there are some people out there who are very clear that they love this adversarial model because they know how to game it and make money out of it. Mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily deliver project good project outcomes. It just means. We're all bearing the cost, higher costs of our projects. Because if we're all having to embed in our businesses the costs of in-house legal teams and lots of costs of managing um, really expensive, tricky contracts to negotiate and, and to implement, and we're all bearing the costs of this increased litigation, then we haven't actually done any more risk management. All we've done is impose cost burdens across our industry so you're saying that it's fundamentally set up that it's almost assumed like things will go wrong and we need to make sure that risk is as far away from us as possible and the price that's paid for that is the actual genuine engagement and management with that risk i think that's a really good summary and you have uh one of the interesting things i've heard you talk about quite a bit about risk is the concept of the client or the owner carrying risk and being comfortable carrying the risk. And I suppose the first thing you'd, you'd say there is, well, well why, would they, why would they want to? What's the upside for them for, for doing that? But you've got some interesting ideas on, on that, haven't you? Um, I, I think risk is something that we've all been taught as lawyers to almost to be scared of and something that you can't own. But any major project carries risks and the better, the faster you know what they are, the the the, the better you're able to um, manage it. And the concept that other people can manage or absorb that risk is a myth as well. Mm-hmm. I had a more, more anecdotes. Um, I can remember talking to a Love young. Love the anecdotes. Keep them coming. I remember, I remember talking to a young lawyer, and and it was like a government was. She was a government lawyer, and she was talking about um, a dam, and and I was sitting there going, well. You know, if, if you're going to have engineers designing this dam for you, there's only a certain amount of risk of a dam failure that, that an engineer can absorb. Um, and 
this is the old limit of liability argument that every professional services provider, like how much risk can a professional service provider absorb? And, and the issue it came back to was that at the end of the day, the decision to build a dam rests with the government and the people who elect that government. Mm-hmm. We as a community decide to build a dam. A dam is an inherently risky structure mm-hmm. to um, build and, and, and to take on. And the concept that you can move the risk of a dam and its failure to a private company, entirely to a private company, is a myth because no private entity can ever absorb the risk of a dam failure. Yep. So that party can carry a slice of risk. You might want project insurance that carries a slice of risk. But at the end of the day, you've got a risk that actually has to be managed. And if you think that, oh, I'll just write a really harsh contract and move everything to this engineer and this consultant and this contractor and think that you've managed the risk, you're fundamentally flawed. You've got to – your risk management starts with the decision in the first place to build the dam. Yeah. And then what procurement processes are you going to put in place? If you're going to um, build a dam and use a design and construct procurement model, then to me you've actually then suddenly got a procurement model that – is treating as critical the two worst elements that you want to have a successful dam because a design and construct model measures and benefits two things, time and cost. How quickly can I build it? How cheaply can I build it? Those are the last two qualities we should want as a community in our dams. Yet Mm -hmm. so often we're, we're adopting procurement models that are rewarding completely the wrong things and we're fundamental failure of risk management. And we've talked about that before. So the concept of design and construct versus construct only. What what's what's your thoughts on on that? Obviously, as a uh, as a partisan designer, but what what do you, what do you, what, what do you think? DNC has its place. It was um, it became popular what in the mid eighties, and it was the idea of a one stop shop that you could move all risk of a project to, and. And, and, and in some respects, that can be very attractive. You, you have one party who's, who's responsible for a project. Um, but otherwise, the contracts are really only measuring time and cost. As a client, one of the problems with DNCs is that what you get is your specification and not a cent more. Yeah. The motivations and the value, what, you, what downstream gets motivated and rewarded is how to deliver the minimum necessary to achieve that specification. So the DNC models are not very profitable models for contractors. Mm -hmm. They're not making huge amounts of money delivering the DNC model. Actually, there's a few people right now who are starting starting a debate that we must be mugs to write DNC contracts because the contractors aren't making good money. The engineers, the designers are not making good money. And it rewards driving the lowest minimum cost to deliver that specification. So as a client, if it's bog standard, everyone knows what they're getting and there's not, you know, quality is is Mm -hmm. not your driver and there's no risk attached to that, that's a fine model. The problem is we're using DNC for absolutely everything in this country. Yeah. Or not absolutely everything. The majority, it is a really widely used tool and a very, very aggressively used tool. Um, And... Then we ask, well, why have I got poor quality tapware mm-hmm. in my building? Why 
why is this not working? Why am I now coming? Why have I got this massive variation claim from the contractor? And there's a pretty simple set of drivers that sit behind those outcomes because that's what the DNC model is designed to do. We, we, think, we think it's this great single point of responsibility, but actually it's moving all of that quality risk back to a client without any capacity to manage it. So if you, if you move away from that model and take the, the designer out of it and go back to the more traditional of you want to use that role how does that fix that in your head there's no one model that fixes anything okay um so i'm not an advocate of construct only is the only way to go or design and construct is the only way to go or collaborative models are the way to go what i'm an advocate of is a really well-educated informed client who has a really diverse skill set as their principal thinking mechanism and then they choose mechanisms that best suit what their um, what their own skill set is and what the market can best deliver. So if I was the... So, so this is very much coming back to your idea of decide what you want, then decide the delivery method that's best suited to that, rather than um, the delivery model being purely driven by legal and perhaps economic drivers alone go back to the reality that you're still going to go and build something that has to work yeah absolutely um and so if you're the government department responsible for roads you're going to have lots of engineers you know exactly what a good road looks like Mm -hmm. you should actually be able to use design um your design consultants directly and and use a lot more construct only because that would give you a lot more control of quality and then you've got your data set across a much more broad set of roads and you can control it. Um, So it depends on what skill sets you have, what risk you're trying to manage and being able to look at a, you know, you're in a great advantage if you're a client and you could look at a whole portfolio of projects that you've implemented and you can see the risks that are driven by the projects that you have been delivering. Um, We've got some government agencies who are in a beautiful position to actually really know uh, where where their costs and risks are being driven from and to actually then adopt models that best suit their organization and do people do that do people go back through that data and say how do how did all these jobs go and what was our our biggest risk points in them and and what was successful and what failed there's there is analysis being done but nowhere near enough okay nowhere near enough um would be my view um and i suppose what it's always hard to see from an external point of view is how they are making the data drive their decision making and you see new contracts coming through and and uh, amendments being made and there's no data that sits behind this change and um you actually can't necessarily see that uh, you know if, if if we were the medical profession we'd be run out of town Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose this because you're saying that is not driving change in how we set the jobs up from yes. the start. Yeah. Um, I mean, you stand, if, if this was a Norman Swan interview, right? Yes. You know, if you were a lawyer being, cross, being, being asked by Norman, you know, why did you change that contract? He'd be going, so where's your evidence for that? And if the evidence is showing that's not adding any value, why are you keeping on doing that? Mm-hmm. I think we need to take that evidence, medical-based approach to... You know, when we draft a contract, and I don't think we're doing that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, to me, there's there's so much complexity around really day to day, 
business as usual, engineering professional services being delivered in our market, but they're being delivered with the biggest antibiotic prophylactic that you've ever seen mm -hmm. in the form of these very bespoke, very adversarial contracts. And it's not changing the engineering service. It's not managing any risk than, than anything else. Actually, it's just making the ex service more expensive. And I'm sitting here going, the data is telling us that this big contractual prophylactic, <laughs> prophylaxis, <laughs> I can't even say that word now, <laughs> is, it, 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 it's, it is exactly that. It's, um, we all think it's, it's curing harm and, and preventing um, damage, but actually it's costing us a lot of money and probably isn't deriving much benefit at all. If I was a medical scientist, I'd be questioning why I'm using it. So why, why do we not, why, why is there such a tendency here to use these bespoke, or these, you know, these bespoke contracts as opposed to in, in other parts of the world, I presume like the UK, where they, they have much more standardized approaches to these sorts of things? Yeah, look, and everyone has a different view on this. Um, I'm, I'm probably have a, have a perspective that our industry has trained itself to become very, very good at this. Um, we've had the rise of construction legal teams inside private practice for uh, 30 years now. Um, and they have very effectively convinced clients that they need their own contract terms, that risk these contracts are necessary to manage risk. Um, I don't think it's been questioned a lot. Mm -hmm. You take advice from a blue chip lawyer and, and you will believe it. Um, and there's a lot of comfort for clients in thinking that they have that advice. Um, uh, I think that's been paired with possibly the rise of in-house counsel who have come from that same um, learning ground, that training ground, um, mm -hmm. They, they do bring a degree of conservatism. Uh, and I also tend to think that clients have given way too much power to lawyers. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'd like to see clients take some power back so. and actually go, thank you for your advice, but that's just going to make my life more expensive and not manage risks. Let's try something simpler and more straightforward. And Which is a bit radical and will probably get me in a lot of trouble, but anyway. <laughs> Back to your Sid Vicious comment from, yeah. early, from earlier on. And you, you have you know, ideas for clients on how to, how to try and, and do this, ways of, that will make a difference or attempt to change the, the status quo. Yeah, so I have this broader perspective that I think we're sitting in a vicious cycle that isn't driving good outcomes. And... And so then you start thinking about what are, um, what might drive a virtuous cycle. And and you know when you say bad outcomes, what you're really saying there, isn't it? You're saying that we think we're putting these jobs together in such a way that they're protecting clients from bad outcomes. But these bad outcomes are happening anyway in, because we're not really managing the yeah. risk, and when we're they're blowing up, and we're getting getting jobs over budget, and and we're getting quality issues, and 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 it's an illusion that we're actually able to manage these risks as well as we're managing them. Spot on, spot on. And there is so much opportunity that we're leaving on the table as a result. So we're not achieving innovation. If Australia is not going to be a world-leading innovative country because we 
put so many constraints on everybody inside the industry. We, we are very siloed. The yeah. contractual matrix makes us very siloed in our thinking. Um, and, and it makes us reticent to bring up innovations or opportunities, things that will actually save people money um, or manage risks better um, because there's so much um, uh, downside to taking another approach. But we, there is lots of things that we can do to, to switch out into a virtuous cycle. And from a broad society holistic sort of point of view, this argument that's happening around diversity and building diverse teams is where it starts. Um, so, number one, if I was a client and I wanted to achieve a different outcome and take uh, a different approach, I'd start by building a really diverse team. So, not just your lawyers and your financiers. Um, they, make, uh, 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 they take plenty of their cut of the pie at present. Um, depending on the project... Um, uh, one, you need people who think like engineers and scientists at the table. It's a different thinking style, mm -hmm. fundamentally. Um, I'd want a data scientist at the table, yep. and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, I possibly want a psychologist at the table because actually part of this is about getting people to think differently, and you need to create really good, safe environments to do that. So having that skill set, because... At the end of the day, construction and delivering major projects, it's a people's game. Mm -hmm. If people think it's anything else, it's, just, it's a people's game. It's about assembling a huge cohort of people to all fight for a common goal. Um, and so you're, you're, you know, this is interjecting a little bit, but you were talking uh, the other evening when we were chatting that the price we pay in mental health in our industry is, is, a, huge, is a huge price. There's many of us are not really talking about or we don't necessarily link the, the fact that the way we do go about the business of, of construction is directly linked to how people feel, behave, get job satisfaction out of that. And there's some horrific experiences. Um, you know, why, why is something like payment cycles such a big issue in the, in the construction industry? You've got small business owners who go bust, you know, two days mm. before Christmas. Um, I... I I'm sitting here going, I still recall an article I read when um, somebody wasn't, this was a project in Perth, where the business owner ended up committing suicide over mm -hmm. payment terms. And we've got people who, are, who literally, you know, three or four chains down that payment chain, waiting months and months and months. And these are small businesses. They don't have the cash flow. Mm -hmm. So why is this critically important? Why do we have an industry where government actually has to intervene on such fundamental basic business principles? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that the higher, you know, I, I get called naive for going, but this is how money is made and this is how the world works. Well, is it and should it? And yeah. is that really your company's philosophy and values? Yeah. Um, and, and companies are being asked to think a lot harder about that. Um, the, the other thing is you can get really touched by conversations with people who have been through some of these really big projects and you hear them and you hear the pain in their voice you hear what their families went through, um, how their careers got ruined along the way. And, you know, the, the projects have been delivered, um, but at the end of the day, you've got rafts of people whose lives have been radically and for the worse uh, impacted by these very aggressive competitive uh, cultures that they're working in. Um, and it hasn't added value to those individuals and those projects yeah. that still have, 
you know, huge litigation that sits out the back of them, companies going under, um, uh, you know, at some, at some point along a project, somebody pays. Yeah. And you're saying that it can be in money and it's in people's uh, mental yeah. health and livelihood and right down the... Right, right down, down the chain. Right down the chain. Yeah. So, so going back um, before we moved into that, your first point is clients just need to build diverse teams so they get a, a, a diverse view of the way they can tackle this, and that's data scientists and psychologists. And Whatever you think might might suit that that particular project and the risk that that project's going going to to bring. If if all you bring to the table is the same thinking that you brought to your last project, you're going to get the same outcome. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if it was a project with a major community controversy attached to it, you'd think you'd bring a community engagement specialist in right from the outset. It's like the number one thing that's going to go wrong with this big, ugly yeah. project that we're delivering is community outrage. How can you build that in from day one along every single decision-making process? Yeah. Bringing those perspectives in. Um, and it would... It would um, differ from project to project yep. you know it could, it could be somebody in the supply chain that that could add some really good value and this is really coming back to your the thing you you, you keep coming back to is that every project is different and the needs of every project yeah. is different and we approach them all yeah the same or very similarly there's not a cookie cutter approach um sometimes we've had that conversation about why did alliance agreements which you know started off so strongly in the early 2000s in Australia. Yep. But then sort of died off within about 10 years. And we don't have good, strong, collaborative contracting models in Australia, even though alliances were leading at their day. Uh, it seemed that we seemed to fall back into a pattern of we just turned everything into an alliance contract and used it as a cookie cutter. Um, alliances are really complex mm -hmm. contract structures to use. They're, they should only – they're really designed for – um, wicked problems, which mm -hmm. is apparently a scientific term. You have <laughs> wicked problems which require really complex thinking. Now, alliance contracts are not straightforward to manage. They actually take a lot of time and a lot of cost, but it's because you need more complex thinking and approach and strategies and team building to get you there and, and to actually get to the outcome of the problems that absolutely are going to hit you. But I can recall sort of someone just sending you through an alliance contract going, we're starting on Monday, can you just sign, you know, the alliance contract that we signed on the last job? And you went, well, then it's not going to be an alliance contract because we haven't aligned anything. And we brought all of the old behaviours from our DNC habits along. And yep. we had clients who just let it, to some extent, didn't, didn't see that they said somebody was just bringing, here's the alliance contract, it's the new saviour. It's not. It's part. It's one option for particular circumstances. So, um, we've really struggled before to well, I like, use. I, th I think your these point, products point well. is fascinating. There that you know, you changed the contract, but you it didn't you change your behaviour. Didn't be, have didn't be. Yeah, and that's, that, that's fascinating. And, and to me, this is this is the client ownership piece, isn't it? Um, if you're a client or you're going to be able to be delivering a, a complex project, you've got to bring it in close and own that problem and own all the risks and really. Um, the only way I think you can do it is by building a really diverse team that has a wide range of skills that actually can see the problem from a whole range of different perspectives 
and also has the capacity to bring in other perspectives over time. So you can actually see those risks and you can see how they might emerge and you can start removing the risks or uh, treating the risks in a way that might actually start managing them or acknowledging that those risks are real and are going to happen um, because not every risk can be avoided. But that ownership of the risk from the client perspective is a key starting point. Um, and it's interesting when you start reading some of the research and, and in particular um, some of the best research is coming out of the UK. They've been, it's been a major sort of focus for research out of the UK since about the late 1990s um, and I've become a, a current avid reader of Ben Flyberg's work and he's out of the Oxford. Yeah, you brought one of his books. I did bring one of yeah. – I brought some very heavy books with me, didn't I? You did, yeah. yeah. So which one's that? That's, that's uh, The Oxford Handbook of Mega Project Management and it's all leading research on mega projects around the world. And it was Ben Flyberg who did the original research about mega projects over the last 100 years. Um, he talks about 98% of them being over budget and over time and he calls it the break-fail model. You know, we overestimate what the benefits of these projects are going to be. We yep. underestimate the risks and complexity. And then at some point during their life, these projects break. Yep. Somebody gets hurt. Um, they fail. And then we have to rebuild them. And we see it over and over and over again with projects that at some point along the line, something falls apart and then somebody has to take them over. And they get repackaged mm -hmm. in different ways. The Sydney Opera House, for example, has not quite the right interior for that exact reason, you know, we we didn't see our architect's vision of the interior of the opera house ever. And um, is is the is the the repackaging then a lot more realistic? For I'm doing air quotes when I say <laughs> realistic, but it, it does do the. Do, well, so what I'm asking is, do the repackaging, do the repackaged projects behave better than the original ones? Um, I don't know if they do. Maybe they're a more realistic representation of what we can actually afford to do or okay, what the actual yeah. risks or the project allows you to do yep. um, or they're what you can politically um, take at that point in time. Mm -hmm. There's a whole range of factors. You've seen projects go in multiple ways, haven't we? And it depends who's holding the can at that point in time because it's not always government. Sometimes it's the private sector. Sometimes it's owners. Sometimes it's toll charge payers. You know, somebody, somebody always picks up the bill. Mm-hmm. So you can it, you, your project gets repackaged according to the size of the bill that can be subsequently paid for. What's the other book? It's, it's an ICE Institute of Civil Engineers publication. Yeah, it's called Doing It Differently, and it's published by the Institute of Civil Engineers, and it does integrated systems thinking. So this is actually about how you bring more complex thinking to wicked problems, and sometimes so bringing that diversity and. Yeah. More complex thinking yeah. thinking problems. Yeah, and, well. and I particularly, I just go straight to Appendix 2, which is how to think about a contract and its structure about how it deals with the things you need to put in place to deal with more complex problems, mm -hmm. such as building diverse thinking, um, dealing with problems early, um, having aligned values. Um, there's a range of about 12 things you could measure a contract against to see if it, how it will stand up to... Um, complexity and change and dealing with risks as and when they emerge. Okay. So that's really... Um, and does it say much about the issue of you know, how we set up contracts to, to be administered and ran versus how people actually do it on the ground? Does it talk about... I, I would say the, the two key things that are coming out of the research are... Um, one is that with complexity 
and complex problems that you need to be really open to being flexible and changing your model along the way, yep. which is the antithesis of uh, most of our PPP DNC models, which is I'll start at day one, I'll put my thinking in a box and give it all to somebody and move all the risk. Yep. It's, it, they're far more flexible models that allow constant learning um, and integration. Okay, so for a, a client who you know, wants to do things differently, we've talked about you know, building diverse teams and keeping risk close. What, what other? Well, the, the other one is sort of the reverse end of what I've learned as a litigator. So if you have a big construction dispute, you have a lovely big global claim, suddenly we go and look for a whole chunk of data, don't we? We, we find every photograph of the site and we, in hindsight, rebuild what happened on a project day by day. What if we did that at the beginning? And we had a data analytics person on our team. And we as the client got as clever as the contractor about information. Mm -hmm. um, I love, I just, I, I'm, I'm desperate to find a client who does this, who collects as much data up front, makes it open source so everyone can use it. Yep. Everyone can take advantage of it. But we did a data collection exercise that is as thorough and rigorous as it tends to be done at the back end of the disputes. How many problems could you solve? How much behavioural elements of what's going right and wrong on a project could you actually start assessing if you actually did that? Now, you'd need a really good collaborative model to pull this off, I think. Um, but in particular, if I was a client, so for example, if I was in the alternative energy industry and I knew that I would be building 50 new solar plants across Australia over the next 10 to 15 years. Yep. What advantage would you have in 10 years' time if you've been tracking the performance data across every project you've delivered? How could you start analysing that data? How could you start analysing performance and what's actually driving cost risks or not driving cost risks? Yep. So I, I, do, I would have a call out for, for clients to look at what data they're capturing and what they can capture up front because I think it could, could nip a lot of things in the, in the bud. Um, what do you think would come out of it? If you, you know, what does what does the uh, the the UK research say? What are the big what are no, the big things that surprise people that come out of this? Data? No, 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 nobody's done this yet. Really, so I don't think anyone's actually started doing this yet. My my, the reason I've come up with this is because we've been doing it in hindsight to rebut global claims. But if we're creating... So we're not doing it from a learning perspective. We're doing it for as a, a litigation tool. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if you recall at the soccer conference last year, we had a data scientist come in and they talked about a case where they trapped all of this data, where they were tracking all of the people movements. But it was all using being used defensively. Yep. What if we used it proactively? We used it proactively to drive the behaviours that you needed. Now, you did probably need to do this inside a collaborative model, especially the first time. But every, if you got all of the data from inside a supply chain and you could actually start making some evidence-based decisions about variations and their impacts and um, efficiencies and what gets in the way of efficiencies. Um, as I said, this is why my team has a data scientist on it. Yes. Because I think we're missing a trick. Um, and in some respects, you know that um, issues are arising on projects because the information is only held by one or two of the parties in, in the big picture. Um, so, for example, QA data, you know, if, if concrete testing results 
aren't being seen instantly. Yep. Why is that? Why do you have to beg three months to see the concrete testing results? Because then you can't solve the problem because by then it's hidden up and been built over and the costs have gone to the wrong place. Yeah. Um, and this comes with back to this other conversation we have, which is I think uh, doing some of these things inside a model that really starts align, aligning um, values and rewards. Um, because I, I talked to you yeah, about all yeah. these... So insta- what, talk, talk about yeah. this. This is, this, is, this is fascinating. Yeah. So we all want good projects. We all want them delivered on cost and on time. We all want to find innovation. But then we have all these reward models that actually counter it completely um and the most frustrating one that that i have at work is someone goes we went and told the project manager about this and it would cost us ten thousand dollars to work out if it could do it but you know they'll save eight weeks off their timetable we know on construction projects time is money yep um and the problem you then have is that that individual that project manager who you're working for might have a personal reward which says that no, if I can bring my element of the project in under budget, I will get a personal bonus. So as a result, someone says, if you spend some money, we might save money over on another part of the project. They've got no intrinsic motivation to raise that. Actually, they're motivated to make it not happen. And as a result, it doesn't go anywhere. Or when somebody else finds out about it six weeks later, they go, can you do this? And you go, no, we had a two-week window to do that analysis and make it happen. The construction programs moved Moved, moved on, on. Uh, we, we can't do it now. Um, and that comes up time and time again. People are, those personal rewards, I think, are uh, sometimes have a very unseen but very dramatic effect on mm-hmm. projects. You, th- you see that one playing into individuals' decision-making all the time. So I think you have to look at that very clearly. And one of the best examples, and I love this example, this was on, um, I believe it was on the Cross River Rail project in the UK, and one of the things you want to be doing if you're running, well, I, I think if, if, you, if you're running a project is you want mistakes to be found, but you want them to be found fast and repaired really fast before they cost a lot of money, yes. before they become entrenched and they call knock-on consequences that you can't fix. And, um, and he was telling me about, uh, it was a cost plus contract, but it was cost plus in relation to mistakes, which is contractor, if you found the mistake and fixed them, we'll pay you for it. But... If I'm the client and I find the mistake, we won't pay you for them. And I'm sitting there thinking, it's just beautiful because I'm the client. I'm going to have a team who's going out there looking for mistakes, but I also know that the builder is going to be looking out harder and faster well. for them. <laughs> so you think about that <laughs> issue and you think about you know, the concrete, concrete test results and you go, well, what if rather than them hiding that they had a poor batching lot for three months because they wanted to hide the evidence that they found it, they showed it, they fixed it, and suddenly you don't have a big concrete dispute claim sitting at the end of the project. It, it was a beautiful way of aligning what outcomes you're wanting with financial rewards. And that is one of the things you can do inside the alliance and the collaborative models that you don't see in these silo DNC construct-only models. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, those models are, are one of those things that can really help you prevent problems but solve problems and to allow innovation through. And what do you think of the whole sort of dispute review board or DABs or all them? How They have a role, but the problem I see is that the problem's already happened. Yep. And they're not going to drive innovation or risk management. So 
instead of this large, expensive dispute resolution board, because I actually want, don't want the problems arising, I'm wondering if we can have an innovation and risk management board which the client and the contractor all sit on and they choose what new risks or challenges that they're going to take on and how they're going to manage them inside the project. So you have a group who are actively looking for innovation, actively looking to risk manage risk and then making and owning the decisions that they make as a consequence as a group. Mm-hmm. So rather than sitting at the back end and waiting for the disputes to come, maybe we can do prevent a few more up front and be a bit more innovative and um, let some clever, more clever thinking happening along the way. Yeah. As we untie the, our box yeah, I can of see, siloed risks. But you can see, can't you, how that will, that, that sort of thing would, has the potential to terrify people in the industry that, that you know, you will discover new risks and take on board new risks, you know, as you, as you move through the project. But I suppose your argument is going to be that those risks are going to exist anyway. You're just hiding from them at the moment. Absolutely. And you can't, Talk about us as an innovation nation. You can't uh, take advantage of this digital disruption that's happening across our industry, this um, this convergence that's happening between digital and the built environment and, um, um, and, and data without doing some different approaches. Um, you know, the McKinsey report that was published in February of this year talks about the construction industry being one of the most inefficient industries in the world. Mm-hmm. We're going to be disrupted by somebody. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah, if we don't do it ourselves. The supply chain's going to come in. Google's going to come in. Hyperloop's going to come in. They're going to disrupt from somewhere and some and somewhere it's going to happen. Um, let's let's start practising it and, and doing some of the cutting-edge um um, mechanisms that are out there and that we can do. We just need a few courageous clients okay. to do it. And what about BIM? BIM's just part of the solutions. BIM's, BIM's just one element of the digital disruption that's happening. I don't think BIM's, BIM's not everything, but BIM, you know, if you sit down and think of BIM being the platform where we create the new world and then we, dry, we write it before it's built, uh, you know, you actually get a chance to practice building something before you put it up. Mm-hmm. And then it's not only that, it's the client's entire tool for understanding their their building, their asset. Actually, it's not the client's tool. It's the whole community's tool mm. for understanding their built environment. And then it's the future. You know, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to use this? Um, there Again, it's one of those opportunities that's sitting out there and we, we are nowhere near starting to utilise that tool. But again, if we sit in siloed adversarial models um, where risk is transferred and where we don't have a government we don't yet have a a, a mandated BIM protocols in Australia um, we're not going to get there um, there are some clients doing some leading work and really starting to set the bar on on BIM models and what they're expecting but they're not the norm and well I think I find it interesting that we much of the talk in legal circles are about BIM or are those adversarial conversations. How do we protect IP? Who bears the risk of a m- mistake in the model? Who's going to pay for that down the line if there are knock-on consequences? And, and BIM is a risk management model. You know, you, you run a BIM model because you're meant to find the problems before they happen. It's not a risk transfer. It's actually a <laughs> fundamental risk management tool. Yet we have turned it into a risk transfer tool and we're failing to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Because if you can actually find a way where this becomes the collaborative tool 
where you find risks and manage risks, then you will start seeing its power. Um, as I said, we've got a tail wagging a dog at the moment. Um, so there are probably people out there listening who say this is all, you know, Ray Lovey Dovey and pipe dream stuff. But some of this has worked, doesn't it? I mean, it's worked in the UK with, with some projects. Um, do you want to talk about those? Because I, I think for me, this sort of concrete grounding in some of the, the things that have been tried that are genuinely different is really interesting. Yeah. Um, look, and there's three, there's three big uh, case, uh, case studies that are coming out of the UK where they really did work towards adopting um, different models and taking a different approach. Um, they are the London Olympics, which they had a really hard deadline. Yep. Um, and there it was a beautiful model where they knew they had a hard deadline. They developed a collaborative team, but they knew that they couldn't, because of that hard deadline, they didn't have time to work with. So they kept things simple and they adopted, you know, they worked out the project, packaged it up into simple packages, didn't do a lot of innovation yep. because they needed to deliver on time and that was their fundamental driver. So they still did an integrated leadership team, but then worked really hard to package up all the works into ways that could be delivered. And they delivered early. Yep. Um, Cross River Rail is one of the other projects, as well as Heathrow Terminal 5. Um, Heathrow, in, in my mind, every story I've heard, it's really about the client sitting there building an amazingly diverse uh, group of people to think about their risks and what they were doing, um, and the client owning the risk. Because... If you know that, you know, every other terminal that's been built has gone over budget, gone late, and you don't want that outcome, then you've got to try something different. So that's what they've been doing. Um, some inter there's integrated project delivery, which is being used in the US. Um, um, and, and we've got some green shoots happening in Australia. There's some large infrastructure projects that are being delivered with some different models. We've got the PAC Motorway, which is an integrated project delivery. I really hope we get some really good case study and some research done around these. Um, we've got people who are coming into the Australian jurisdictions from, from the UK, from Europe, who are much more open to some of these different models um, and who are bringing these different working styles with them. So there's the, the opportunity for change. Absolutely. Very good. About time. Kerry Power, it was a pleasure talking Thanks. to you. Thank Thanks you very sure. much.